This is the second section of the lecture, Archaeology at the Monument on Two Embattled Sites of Faith and History in Contemporary India. Here I turn to the history of the resurrection of Bodhgaya. I take up the history of the site from a time when it was first encountered by British surveyors and archaeologists over the mid-19th century as an abandoned and dilapidated structure. Accounts of successive visits to the site by Buchanan Hamilton in 1811, Colin Mackenzie a decade later, and Captain Markham Kitto in 1847 in his new appointment as archaeological inquirer, followed by Major Mead, who undertook the first diggings there in 1863 on the directive of Alexander Cunningham. All these accounts repeatedly conjure a picture of a structure in complete ruin, with the British marking their transition from indiscriminate removal of antiquities to more organized collecting of stray sculptures from the site. In its earliest forms, colonial archaeology can be seen to have accelerated rather than stalled the process of decay. As the Mohabodhi temple, I quote, ever more denuded of its ornamentation, its grounds and foundation, quarried for building material, continued its decline into an unreadable rubble of the past. We can then chart the passage of the structure from ruin to monument as it came to be subjected in the 1880s to an extensive government-funded archaeological program of renovation and repair under the direction of the Director General of Archaeology, Alexander Cunningham, and his assistant, J.D. Begler. By all account, this archaeological restoration was a stupendous task that effectively amounted to the physical remaking of what could be reconstructed as a multi-tiered, towered brick temple dating back to around the 4th century of the Christian of the Common Era. The archaeological restoration involved, among other things, the unearthing of the full plinth of the temple with longitudinal bands running five feet into the ground and the discovery of a series of Mauryan period antiquities dating back to the earliest history of the structure. The most important of these structures was the Vajrasana stone built by Emperor Ashoka under the Bodhi tree and a raised terraced walk near the tree called the Chankrama Chaitya or the Jewel Cloister, where Buddha is said to have walked several paces with flowers springing under each step and the large numbers of sculpted pillars of a red sandstone railing from broadly the same period. These were the most important of the archaeological structures which were excavated and restored. By the end of the 19th century, we have then a full reconstruction of what was surmised, conjectured to be a temple of the late 5th or early 6th century of the Common Era, with the reinstallation around it of what was then identified as the Ashokan stone railing and the uncovering too of all the surrounding miniature stupas and structures of the later Pala and Sena periods. Thereafter, we can follow the new life of 
the conserved and resplendent Mahabodhi temple, displaying the full spread of the surrounding sandstone railing and the enormous terrace plinth above which rose this grandly ornamented temple tower, glittering in sections of its gilt-layered facade. It is this remade archaeological monument that would be now progressively catapulted from a national to a global map of desires and devotions to become the new coveted locus of world Buddhism. So what is ironical is the way the archaeological restoration of the monument was not a guarantee of its secure historical life as pure monument. Rather, it opened up a huge religious uh, controversy over the ownership and custody of the structure. So the archaeological remaking of the temple coincided with the launch of a prolonged battle over the structure between two newly mobilized communities of Hindus and Buddhists, putting the colonial government to one of its most arduous tests as a mediator and a contending authority. In the 1880s and 90s, the battle lines were most sharply drawn between a sect of the Hindu Mahans, the Shaivite Giris, who had constructed a monastery at Bodhka in the medieval period and had held possession of the main shrine and the precincts for several centuries. And on the other side of the camp were a new group of Sinhalese Buddhist monks led by the visionary monk Anagaraka Dharmapala of Sri Lanka and backed by a camp of European Orientalists led by the Victorian scholar Edwin Arnold, who were determined to wrest from the Hindus and restore to the world of Buddhism this holiest of holy sites, the place of Buddha's enlightenment. The immediate issue at stake had to do with the freedom of worship and the proprietorship and control of the shrine. For the government and the archaeological survey, though, what was equally at issue were their own rights of intervention and the urgent need of restoration of the temple, which had been reduced to a pile of ruins. The story of Bodhgaya can be recounted at different planes, in different time frames, and from different points of view. That this was the place, the village of Uruvilva near Gaya, on the banks of the river Nairanjana, where Sakya Muni attained Nirvana after days of meditation under the Bodhi tree during which he successfully resisted the temptations of Mara, is well established in Buddhist legend and history. Early archaeological scholarship has ascertained that this was also where the Mauryan emperor Ashoka erected the first commemorative shrine around the tree, the Bodhi Ghara, along with a stone railing and a polished stone referred to as the Vajrasana in the 3rd century BCE. The larger Mahabodhi temple was presumably erected sometime in the later Gupta period. Continuously rebuilt and re-embellished, the structure as it was imagined and remade from the ruins in British India has been attributed to the early medieval period, that is, to the Pala period, roughly the 9th or the 10th centuries. The architectural elaboration of the temple and the rich output of sculptures from the region, dating from the 8th to the 12th century, point to a peak in the importance of Bodhgaya in this late Buddhist period under Pala and Sena rule, 
when it became a thriving hub of royal patronage, artistic production, and most important, pan-Asian Buddhist activity, where Buddhists from all over Southeast Asia, China, and Japan flocked to Bhutan. Over time, however, there were other histories and identities that also came to surround the place. It is thus possible to describe a Bodh Gaya that became over the late medieval period, that is around the 14th-15th century, more effectively Shaivite than Buddhist. The presence of the first Shaivite ascetic at the deserted site has been traced back to around the year 1590, the end of the 16th century, and a monastery was said to have been built by that sect around half a century later. The direct ancestors of this Shaivite Giri sect are said to have received in the 18th century a royal farman from Emperor Shala, granting them rent-free villages, including the one where the Mahabodhi temple stood. The legitimacy of the Giris at the site came to be supported by a powerful repertoire of myths that linked the two neighboring holy sites of Gaya and Buddha Gaya to a complex Hindu cosmology. Assimilating the figure of Buddha, the Bodhi tree, and various Buddhist votive objects within its own pantheon and rituals. Medieval and modern visitors to the site noted various forms of Shaivite intrusions, such as the appearance of an image of Maheshwara or Shiva at the door of the Mahabodhi temple, and the transformation of several of the scattered votive stupas into Shiva lingams. This naturalized and appropriated Hindu identity of the site found direct reinforcement in most of the first scholarly accounts of Bodhgaya by Indian scholars in the early 20th century. And the theory of, I quote, a pervasive Hindu mode of encompassment of Buddhist icons and practices at Bodhgaya has found its most sophisticated propagation in a recent cultural anthropologist thesis on the multiple movers and actors who made for the modern history of the place. I'm referring here to a thesis by Alan Trevithick, which has now become a book called The Jerusalem of the Buddhists in British India. It is looks at the claims on warfare. In these representations, the Hindu appropriation of the site is explained as an inclusive and accommodating process one that did not so much erase as subsume Buddhist beliefs and rituals into its own practices. It was a process that therefore <coughs> never denied incoming groups of Buddhist pilgrims access to worship at the Bodhi tree and the Mahabodhi shrine. A picture emerges then of a Bodhgaya that by the end of the 13th century had slipped from being a prime center of Asian Buddhist pilgrimage to becoming a largely abandoned site under Shaivite occupation. Although it was still visited by occasional Burmese missions of restorers and, and pilgrims who were said to have been cordially hosted by the Giri proprietors of the shrine. The picture culminates in the middle of the 19th century, in the 1870s, in the arrival in 1874 of one more Burmese restoration team dispatched by King Minden of Burma to be followed in 1891 by the visit of the Sinhalese pilgrim Anagarika Dharmapala. 
While the first event, the visit of the Burmese restoration team, instigated the beginning of a direct governmental bid for the control of the site. The second, the visit of Dharmapala, saw the forming of the Mahabodhi Society as the representative of world Buddhism and the launch of a concerted international campaign for the restoration of the temple of Bodhgaya to its rightful Buddhist owners. Though separated by barely two decades, the two visits of the Burmese restoration team and of Anagarika Dharmapal with Edwin Arnold stand in pointed contrast to each other. Whereas the Burmese team in conducting its task of restoration and improvements and additions to the temple was willing to work in full cooperation with the Giri Mahan, abiding by his terms and conditions, the coming of Dharmapala marked the start of an irreparable breach between the Hindu owners of the site and the Buddhist claimants, whereby Giri proprietorship would be pitted against new Buddhist claims to the sole control and possession of the Mahabodhi temple. If the Burmese mission can be seen as the last in the line of the traditional practices of the sacred embellishments and kingly benefaction of holy sites, the Sinhalese mission at the end of the 19th century became the first push towards a wholly modern reclamation of the site in the interest of a newly forged religious community of Buddhists. Like similar, many similar sites of converted worship in medieval India, Bodhgaya too emerges as a space of religious harmony and coexistence, unmarked by any overt signs of strife between Hindu Shaivites and Buddhist worshippers until the intrusion of a reinvented modern-day competing religion of Buddhism. It presents a classic instance of a site that was reconfigured as a world pilgrimage center almost entirely as a consequence of the European discovery of Buddhism in the Victorian era and its workings of the Oriental imagination. The publication in 1879 of Edwin Arnold's famous poetic rendering of the life of Buddha, called The Light of Asia, has been seen to be a cataclysmic event in this movement. It was this Victorian Buddhist epic which catapulted this forgotten site of Bodhgaya in eastern Bihar onto an international map, making Edwin Arnold himself one of the most vocal of the new Buddhist claimants over Bodhgaya. Following the runaway success of his book, The Light of Asia, Arnold's visit to Bodhgaya, an invited tour of India in 1885-86, reached its climax in Ceylon, the older name of Sri Lanka, where he is said to have mooted the first proposal to the chief priest of Sinhalese Buddhism for the Bodhgaya property to be immediately restored to Buddhist hands. A proposal he thereafter placed before the governor of Ceylon, the Indian Secretary of State, and the Viceroy of India himself, then Lord Curzon. The following decade would witness the appearance on the scene of another momentous actor, Anagarika Dharmapal, an exemplary specimen of a colonial Sinhalese intellectual, a product of a mix of missionary education theosophical initiations and occult mysticism, 
who was reborn to Buddhism in the 1880s through the roots of European Orientalism, theosophy, and occult mysticism, and who made the Buddhist recovery of Bodhgaya the lone cause of his latter-day life. The Buddhist passed to Bodhgaya, never in doubt and never seriously questioned by Hindu priests and worshippers who over the years saw it as much theirs as that of the Buddhists, became now the crux of the new campaign for the expropriation of one group from the site and its replacement by another, very much in the same way as the Ayodhya campaign unfolded, where Hindus and Muslims here worshipped in coexistence. But now the demand is for the complete expropriation of the Muslims and the reclaim of the site purely by the Hindus. What sparked off the immediate conflagration at Bodhgaya was the installation of a Buddhist idol within the premises of the shrine. Anagarika, Dharmapal, Anagarika Dharmapala's determination in 1895 to place in the Mahabodhi temple a 700-year-old Japanese image of the Buddha, which he presented as a divine ordination, almost the same way as the appearance of Ram Lalla within, uh, within Ayodhya appeared as a divine ordination too. So Dharmapala's determination to, to place this Japanese image of a Buddha within the premises of the temple now met with violent resistance from the Mohan and his courts, and set into motion a legal case over rights of worship and ownership of the temple that would not be resolved for the next half century. I will not go here into the long history of the court case, which has been dealt with in Alan Trevithick's book, or attempt to distangle the tantalizing web of claims on the site that came to be presented by the two counter camps of Hindus and Buddhists as they move between the roles of prosecutors and defendants in various stages of the case. As I've said, this entire history and prolonged legal battle is narrated in Alan Trevithick's book, A Jerusalem for the Buddhists in Modern India. What is pertinent for my study is to underline the way the events of the 1880s and 90s produced a sharp polarity between Buddhist and Hindu religious identities and rituals at Bodhgaya. Various overlapping Hindu rites, such as the smearing of paste and oil on the image of Buddha, the chanting of noisy hymns, and the offering of pindas to Bhagavan Buddha as the Bodhi tree by pilgrims coming from Gaya, were now singled out by Dharmapala and Edwin Arnold as practices that disgust and outrage the Buddhist pilgrims and are revolting even to the casual visitor. This is a quotation. This sense of desecration went hand in hand with a new sense of the neglect and decay of the great temple. Invoked in the writings of Dharmapala and Arnold in a trope of loss and longing, the rhetoric of decline now fed off an equally pressing archaeological concern about the protection and restoration of the historical structure of the temple that steadily gained ground during the years. Now, The immediate catalyst for government intervention at Bodhgaya had been the activities of the Burmese Restoration Mission of 1874, which finally brought home to the government 
the need to assert and define its own area of jurisdiction over the site vis-a-vis -vis those of religious restoration teams or even those of the Hindu Shaivites who occupied the site. For the first time in Bodh Gaya, during the time of this Burmese restoration mission, the traditional practices of renovation of a sacred monument found itself at odds with a modern historical and archaeological view of restoration. Burmese repairs and improvements entirely acceptable to the temple Mahan, however, caused great alarm in the Indian archaeologist Raja Rajendralal Mitra, who was deputed by the government to supervise the site and prevent any hasty restoration or remaking by the Burmese team. As a part of this deputation to Bodhgaya in the winter of 1876, for the purpose of controlling the operation of the Burmese restorers, Rajanullah would, Mitra would be categorical in his denouncement of the irreparable damages that he saw being brought about by the Burmese. He wrote, these Burmese restorers were doubtless very pious and enthusiastic in the cause of their religion, but they were working on no systematic or traditional plan. They were ignorant, he writes, of the true history of their faith and perfectly innocent of all the knowledge of architecture and the requirements of archaeology and history. And the mischief that they've done by their misdirected zeal has been serious. So true knowledge of Buddhist religious and history now became the sole prerogative of modern scholarship. And it was its methodological and investigative tools that came to Raja Rajendralal Mitra's aid as he sought to recover Bodh Gaya's ancient past and deduce the original structure of the great temple and its courtyard by piecing together a variety of evidence, drawing primarily on the travel accounts of the two ancient Chinese pilgrims to the site, Fahien and Huen San. A decade or more later, it would be left to the expertise of Alexander Cunningham when he became director of the Archaeological Survey of India and to his assistant J.D. Begler to restore and remake what Rajendralal Mitra had invoked in his text. With the launch of the, an extensive archaeological program of repair and renovation of the Great Temple under the orders of the Lieutenant Governor of Bengal. This is when Cunningham, who, over, who oversaw this work, wrote, the history of the Mahabodhi temple is written in the alterations and successive editions that were made to it. These different editions are actual facts that were revealed during the repair of the building. There would be differences among professionals even at this stage over the certitude of such facts and the extent to which clearance and restoration could be allowed with, without further threatening the original fabric of the building. Nonetheless, as J.D. Begler and Alexander Cunningham succeeded in, sorry, nevertheless, as J.D. Begler and Alexander Cunningham succeeded in excavating a set of early Ashokan period remains from the site, it became a matter of immense archaeological pride to prove the antiquity of the present Mahabodhi temple and its location exactly over the remains of Ashoka's original temple even as its story was then carried forward through successive stages of its rebuild, rebuilding and embellishment into the 9th and 10th centuries. Throughout the early 20th century, 
The singular focus of most art historical and archaeological studies centered around recovering the Bodhgaya of the Mauryan and Sunga periods. Thus, for instance, the earliest corpus of archaeological photographs of the site lavished its attention mainly on the details of the Ashokan stone railing, singling out the decorations and motifs on pillar after pillar to the exclusion of all other structures. These carved railing pillars have remained over time the most valued and the most intensely scrutinized relics on the site. Also the ones that most, were most urgently sought out from different nooks and corners to be refurbished and reconstructed around the renovated temple. Later, the remains of this railing pillar were also the first and most prominent objects to be removed in large numbers and reassembled within the site's archaeological museum when it was set up in the 1950s, with the gaps in the railing around the temple to be filled with plastic replicas. Now I come though to the failure of archaeological custody over the site. The archaeological restitution and sanctification of the monument, as I mentioned before, came to have a direct bearing on the heightened sacrality of the site in the eyes of contending religious communities. It is ironic that Alexander Cunningham's authoritative account of Bodhgaya, titled Mahabodhi, or the Great Temple under the Bodhi tree at Buddhagaya, appeared the very year, 1892, that saw the launch of the most heated legal battles over the religious rights and identities of the place. The securing of its ancient past was clearly no guarantee of an uncontested modern life for the monument. As the colonial government found itself drawn into the thick of the legal dispute, the prime concern of the archaeological establishment was to steer clear of religious discord and establish that the government alone could be entrusted with the protection and preservation of the historical structures of the site. The issue of ownership, it was believed, could be best clinched by a new community of scholars and administrators who alone commanded a historical and archaeological knowledge of the temple edifice. But this is where archaeology confronted its greatest stumbling block at Bodhgaya and found itself caught in a continuous deadlock of negotiations. Through the 1890s, we see the colonial government cautiously attempting to maintain status quo at the site of the restored temple trying to separate the question of proprietorship from the requirements of worshippers, placing both sets of rights, I quote, the Maham's legitimate proprietorship and the Buddhist rights of worship in a context of extensive customary practice stretching over five centuries. The colonial state's position was to try and lay out a domain of dual custodianship of the monument at Bodhgaya accommodating the Mahan's proprietorship with its own assumption of guardianship, the temple that had been painstakingly restored at a cost of two lakhs was placed under the public works department of the government in the charge of an executive engineer and an overseer who was to superintend the monument and its grounds, including the Burmese rest house that had been built in 1874 and that served as the main residence for all Buddhist pilgrims who subsequently came to Bodhgaya. The circuitous logic of official thinking can best be captured in its own words. I quote, all of these acts, though far from amounting to a repudiation of the alleged rights of the Mahan, seem to involve 
the gradual assertion of a coordinate authority with power, if not to dispose of the shrine or to expropriate the man, at least to superintend his superintendence and to control his control. So interestingly, superintend his superintendence and control his control. There would be, starting from the mid-1890s, a marked swing in British attitudes in favor of Buddhist demands, a turnaround that can be traced to the government's reversal of its initial injunction and its decision in 1896 to allow the retention of the controversial Japanese Buddha within the precincts of the temple. By the time Lord Curzon, in his status as Viceroy, but also as one of the greatest kind of supporters of the work of archaeological conservation, took on the charge of mediation over Bodhka in the winter of 1902-3. The tone of governmental deliberations changed more overtly from a pose of neutrality to one of active intervention in favor of the Buddhists in the writing of a great historical wrong. The Leftman governor of Bengal, in his 1903 memorandum of Bodhgaya to the Viceroy, was categorical in his stand that the temple was undoubtedly Buddhist and ought to be made over to the Buddhists. The government, however, refused to hand over the shrine to the Buddhists as their property. Since it wrote, it had no desire to oust one proprietor to install another. The Mohabodhi temple was to be held in trust by the government which would ensure its new status as an exclusively Buddhist shrine and issue regulations to guarantee the proper conduct of Buddhist worship while making room for the continuation of some kinds of Hindu worship here. The Mahant would remain in the status of only a ground landlord to draw the fees of all visitors, whether Hindu or Buddhist. Eager as he was to recover Bodhgaya for Buddhism, Viceroy Curzon was equally anxious to carry the Mahant and the Hindu religious community with him. And it was the Mahant Krishna Dayal Giri who refused to yield though, destroying Curzon's hopes of a harmonious agreement. So this position of the government of handing over the shrine to the ownership of neither the Hindus or to the foreign body of the Mahabodhi society, but to retain it as a British Indian monument in the custody of the state was one that would fail. The government's deliberation on Bodhgaya coincided almost exactly with the passing of the Ancient Monuments Preservation Bill of 1903. What is striking to note is the government's reluctance to apply this bill and push for the acquisition of Bodhgaya Shrine, except as a very last resort. The problem was that the Mahabodhi Temple was precisely the kind of monument a building still in worship and already the property of contending religious constituents that fell outside the purvey of this ancient monument preservation bill. Over such buildings, the government had given itself only the right to inspect, advise and direct in respect of conservation and if necessary to punish any defacement or destruction, but not the government had not given itself the right of complete custody. As the government vacillated between the assertion of only these limited rights of conservation and protection and a larger bid for the acquisition of the shrine 
as the sole means of diffusing the religious dispute. In the end, the government of Bengal passed on the case unresolved to the government of India in 1904, and Curzon was left pushing only some minimum archaeological demands, such as the immediate removal of the large number of stone pillars of the Ashokan railing from the Mahans monastery and their replacement around the Bodhi tree within the original site. As in the Ayodhya controversy, in Bodhgaya too at this stage, in the legal proceedings that started unfolding since 1895, we find a select marshalling of scholarly evidence across camps concerning, in this case, the greater Hindu or the greater Buddhist relevance of the site, using history versus custom, originary versus naturalized identity of the monument. As the government moved in 2000, in, sorry, as the government moved in 1902-03 to set up its own Bodhgaya Commission, it was an urgent search of respectable and impartial Hindu scholarly opinion to back its case for the transference of the temple custody from the Mohans to the Buddhists. It found its ideal figure for the Bodhgaya Commission in Pandit Hadoprasad Shastri of the Sanskrit College of Calcutta, a Bengali scholar held up as a strict and orthodox Hindu and in addition a good archaeologist and a scholar of Buddhism. Horoprashad Shastri, like many other Bengali archaeologists of the time, was unstinting in his recommendation that the temple should be transferred to the Buddhists. He saw this, I quote, as a very important work in which the whole of Asia is interested and which may lead to India being made again a place of pilgrimage of the whole of Asia and the wealth of other countries pouring into India. His Excellency is trying by the repair of ancient works of art, Raj, uh, Horoprasad Shastri wrote, to turn India into the Italy of Asia. And this will make Bodhgaya the Mecca of the Buddhists. I will not have lived in vain, Horoprasad Shastri concluded, if I can contribute anything towards the conservation of this important end. Horoprasad Shastri's vision of Bodhgaya as the center of world Buddhism can today be seen as almost prophetic. But the end that he, the government, and most of all the Mohammadi society so ardently campaigned for was still far off at that time. Nor, it seems, was his opinion really representative of either the Hindu Orthodox or even the liberal Hindu scholarly community of the period. Through the 1920s and 30s, the writings of local scholars on Bodhgaya were often marked by a distinct pro-Mohant stance, by a reiteration of the Hindu past and the time-worn Hindu sanctity of the site, and by a repeated questioning of the need or feasibility of a complete handover of the temple to the Buddhists and excision of the Shaivites. The Mohant, it was said, was responsible to the Hindu community of the whole of India, and the transfer of the temple would involve not merely the loss of his rights over the property, but a much greater loss of Hindu national custody in favor of an extra-national Buddhist body. Remember, the Mahabodhi society is being continuously now being showed up as an extra-national Buddhist body. Pushed to the limits of its mediatory capacity, its patience and powers exhausted, 
The Bengal government eventually handed over the dispute to the Governor General's Council, although the whole issue soon dropped back by default to the level of the local administration. Over the next two decades, the government could be seen to disengage itself gradually from even a potential involvement in adjudicating, in this case, between the Dharmapalas and the Shaivaitiris. In 1914, one more attempt was made by the government, now of the newly created province of Bihar and Orissa, to establish its archaeological custody over the Mahabodhi movement by bringing it under the purview of the ancient Monuments Preservation Bill. But this move to fail. The Bodhgaya dispute would not be amicably settled either in the lifetime of Curzon or of Anagarika Dharmapal, who died in 1833 in his new Buddhist base at Sarnath, vowing to continue his fight for the temple in his next birth. In fact, the dispute would not be resolved even within the time of the rule of the British in India. It would require a distancing of the government from the conflict, as well as a toning down of the confrontational tactics of the Mahabodhi society in the decade following Dharmapal's death to make room in the 1940s for a strategic renegotiation of Buddhist and Hindu identities as, I quote, inheritors of one great Aryan tradition. Under this changing dispensation, Buddhism was seen to appear as the same as Vedanta, as the pristine Aryan core within Hinduism, and the Hindu brothers could be invited to join hands with the Mahabodhi society in exercising, in exercising joint control over the temple. And it was eventually after independence, in 1949, that the Bodhgaya Temple Act finally came into effect under the state government of Bihar, placing the Mahabodhi Temple under the direct management committee comprising of an equal number of Hindu and Buddhist representatives. The government control over the site and the monument became effectively nominal, registered only through the figure of the district magistrate of Gaya, who would serve as an ex-officio chairman of the Bodhgaya Temple Management Committee that became functional in 1953. And it was ensured, as it still does to date, that the Buddhist membership of the committee would be restricted by and large to Indian Buddhists, keeping at bay not only the claims of the Mahabodhi society, but also the surging presence of Asian Buddhists, particularly Japanese Buddhist patronage at the site. Now, 90 years after his death, uh, Anagarika's vision of Bodhgaya as the Mecca of world Buddhism stands fulfilled in this fast-transforming, globalized town. Riding high as a magnetic point of international tourism and pilgrimage, a prime claimant for Japanese Buddhist funds, and accredited with the UNESCO designation as a World Heritage Site, in 2002. Bodhgaya as a Mecca of Buddhism, sorry, can I repeat that part? Riding high as a magnetic point of international tourism and pilgrimage, a prime claimant for Japanese Buddhist funds, 
and accredited with UNESCO designation as a World Heritage Site in 2002. Bodhgaya's local and national locus stands ironically superseded by its international stature. The past decades have seen the rise of a thriving cluster of Asian Buddhist temples and monasteries of Tibet, Bhutan, Myanmar, Thailand, Vietnam, China, and Japan that came to make for a whole new township around the old temple site. The last months of 2002 were a time of accelerated development as Bodhgaya's world heritage status led to the launching of its own airport just beyond the civil lines of Gaya to accomplish its full and final metamorphosis into a world Buddhist site. Now, in stark contrast, in those precisely the same period, 2002-03, Ayutthaya featured as a place wracked by continuing communal conflict and violence as the most combustible flashpoint on the nation's political map. Following a fresh round of archaeological excavations and reports in that were conducted in 2003, the VHP stood further convinced of the final sanction of hard archaeological evidence and believed that that evidence had removed all further obstacles to their construction of the Ram Temple at the precise spot where the mosque stood. And they believe, as they still do now, that it is this, the building of this Ram, long denied Ram Janmabhumi Temple which will make of this provincial town a new center of national and international Hinduism. In juxtaposing the case of Ayodhya and Bodhgaya, this overview has shown the extent to which their histories overlap and jostle with each other. As their modern destinies unfolded in different time frames, they frequently struck a similar resonance and showed a similar competition among archaeological knowledges, sacred histories, and public remembrance of these places, drawing the two sides together in a web of common concerns. To begin with, we see in both cases an overarching obsession with antiquity and origins, whereby the value of a structure came to devolve centrally on the unraveling of a primary moment of its creation. The deployment of archaeological evidence by the Ram Janmabhumi movement, as we saw in the last lecture, provided a vivid instances of the way the site came to be memorialized through a conjecturally original history of temple construction, with the mosque serving only as a sign of negation of an absent interior structure, which is why neither a subject of neither an active site of worship nor a valued symbol of India's art and architectural history. The Babri Masjid, it seemed, had little to recommend itself little to guarantee its survival in the face of the militant death wishes who were destined to replace it with a Ram temple. So again, it is the story of this originary history of the site that led to the continuous negation of the mosque as an illegitimate structure and a desire for an imagined structure of a Hindu temple in its place. Similarly, at Bodhgaya, each artifact removed from the, like at Ayodhya, 
each artifact recovered from the site assumed meaning only through its location within the lost primary unit of an imaginary Vaishnav temple. So also at Bodh Gaya, the main archaeological charge was to move backward in time, peeling off successive layers of accretions and alterations of the Mohabodhi temple to recreate the earliest appearance of the shrine as it existed in the Ashokan period. Linked to this search for origins were the proliferating narratives of loss, recovery, and reclamation whereby a monument or a site came to be seen a silent witness of prior histories of ravage and depredation, where each mark of intrusion demanded correction and reversal. Thus, the body of the Mahabodhi temple and its precincts appeared replete with signs of later Hindu infiltration that covered over the true Buddhist identity of the site. And the tale of the apparently disappeared Ram temple became archetypal of the fates of innumerable other Hindu temples, with the Babri Masjid identified as one of a large list of Dargahs, Idgahs, and Masjids, which the VHP tabulated region by region from all over the country, all of which were seen to bear witness to the same tale of destruction and replacement of temples. The case of Bodhka, however, focuses attention on other conflictual histories of Hindu aggression and appropriation. What has been generously interpreted as a Hindu mode of encompassment could easily be read as a more outright takeover of a Buddhist holy site that required urgent redress in order to restore the original history of the place and return it to its true heirs, the Buddhists. The definition of true heirs here can we seem to take on a host of contending dimensions over the early 20th century, as Dharmapala's confrontational tactics were forced to give way to a politics of appeasement, as the Mahabodhi society and the Hindu Mahasabha of the 1830s chose to underscore the commonalities and shared aerial inheritance of Hindu and Buddhist brethren, or as a new lobby of Indian Buddhists tried to oust the Mahabodhi society to stake their own higher claims to the temple. Clearly, the politics of reclamation of these two sites, Ayodhya and Bodhgaya, have left the Hindu nation of the past and present in a complex tangle as to how far histories can be reversed and repossessions legitimized.